0: Good morning. Uh, Great to be with you this morning. Uh, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. If you brought one to Revelation chapter 19. And if you're following in one of the blue uh, Bibles on the ground near you, you can find Revelation 19 on page 1039. We are uh, beginning a new series this morning called. Called out, the word for church in the Greek New Testament is ekklesia. And uh, the word ekklesia means called out, that God calls us uh, uh, to follow Him as an assembly. And as we walk into uh, the world together as a church, we follow the one who calls us. So we are going to be looking over the next eight weeks about what, uh, what the New Testament says about the nature of the church. So let me invite you to stand with me as we read God's word in um, Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 6. Revelation is a record of the Apostle John's vision. Um, And so this is what he writes. John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God reigns, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Amen. These are God's uh, true words to us. Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray that you would give us um, hearts to um, comprehend, minds to comprehend, imaginations to envision all that you uh, have to say to us by your word, by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe you see it, please. Well you can't see it, but it's all around us. Uh, a problem that seems uh, to go largely unnoticed until you begin to look into it and discover that it is an enormous problem in our culture. It's been called an epidemic by sociologists. The Boston Globe has said that it is the largest um, health risk to middle-aged men. The New York Times has said it's tearing America apart. And anybody who spends any time looking into this problem quickly realizes that it is enormous, devastating, and it shows no signs of slowing down. And yet it is hard to see. The problem is loneliness. Loneliness is affecting uh, Americans at an unprecedented rate. Uh, It's a major factor in the rising level of suicide amongst teenagers. It affects uh, disgruntled uh, millennials. It affects cynical Gen Xers. And it affects aging boomers who insist that they are not really aging. It's a major cause, um, it, it, it affects especially men, lonely men who may have great jobs, but regularly report that nobody really knows them, but women aren't immune to it either. Uh, we can be in a room full of people, surrounded by people. We can live lives at hectic paces where we are filled, filling our, you know, our days and hours with activity, and yet still feel incredibly lonely, isolated. So what can be done about the problem of loneliness in our world?
1: Uh, You know, there was a a doctor
0: who uh, worked at a nursing home a few years back, and he um, saw the aging population that he was caring for just kind of uh, isolated and and, uh, kind of living their twilight years without a sense of purpose. And so he convinced the administration to let him bring animals into the nursing home. And so he brought dogs and even cats, for some reason, I don't know why, um, but he brought birds and he brought rabbits and he brought goats and chickens and and uh, the elderly people begin to to uh, care for uh, these animals and they begin to find uh, form groups, uh, kind of social groups that would care for them and uh, and he begin to discover that that patients who hadn't spoken in months uh, begin to ask if they could if they could pet the dog if they could take the dog for a walk and patients who who were non-ambulatory uh, began to walk down and find the nurses and begin to um, begin to walk again. And uh, and they found that um, these residents began to actually form groups to care for the animals together. And as they did so, the use of medication, especially medication used to uh, treat agitation in senior citizens, began to decrease, and the mortality rate decreased, and people began to live longer. And simply, uh, the point is simply this, that people were coming to life because they found a reason to uh, live and uh, an increase of purpose uh, brought them together and they began to form kind of social bonds and their lives by any objective measure began to be uh, more fuller, more, more meaningful, more purposeful as they were less isolated. Friends, God has a plan to give us community and purpose and it's called the church. And I know that as soon as I tell you that that is God's plan, you're probably responding with a hefty dose of skepticism, and I'm here to tell you this morning that God's plan A, not plan B, not plan C, but God's plan A for the world is the church. The church is God's plan, not just to overcome our loneliness. Uh, It is that, but it's so much more than that. The church is God's plan to expand his reign, the kingdom of God, to every corner of the earth. The church is God's plan to get the gospel into the hearts of your neighbors and into the hearts of your children. And the church is even God's plan to get the gospel into your hearts and my heart as well. Uh, The church, with all of its failings, all of its warts, all of its mistakes and challenges and struggles, its past is God's plan A. So let me ask you, how does that strike you? Does that strike you as unlikely? Um, the church is God's ancient low-tech solution to our modern problem, uh, not just our modern problems, but certainly our modern problems. I used this anecdote a couple of, a while ago, but it just is too good to not repeat. it. I spent a couple of years. Um, <laughs> several years ago, when the, uh, the drug war was kind of uh, flaring up, the US government uh, decided that they had to stop or slow at least the tide of drugs coming over the southern border of the United States. And so the government um, built in places in the desert in like Arizona and New Mexico, in the middle of the desert, the most high-tech wall that uh, money could buy. Uh, these places where drug traffickers were known to, to, to traffic uh, drugs in the United States, and so they built the, the high tech, most like how high tech can a wall be? Well, it was really high tech. Uh, you can't climb this wall. Uh, there were motion sensors that would alert if there was any movement. Um, there was kind of uh, motion sensors that would alert, like, because we know that sometimes uh, drug traffickers, they build, they build tunnels underground, right? And so there were sensors that would alert if, if, if somebody was building under, you know, burrowing under the wall. Um, There were video cameras, all this stuff, and yet it did absolutely nothing to slow the the tide of drugs coming into the United States. And when they went back and watched video footage, they discovered that drug traffickers were coming up near the wall on the southern side and using catapults to launch bales of marijuana over the wall into the United States. And the point is just this the fanciest, most high-tech, expensive wall ever built it was no match for 3,000-year-old technology. Friends, the church is God's low-tech, ancient solution to our modern problems. We carry in our pockets supercomputers that will connect us to anybody on the planet at any time, and yet we are more isolated and more alone than we have ever been. The church is God's ancient, low-tech solution to our modern problems. The church is present in almost every city on the planet as God's people gather together for worship and move out into the world on mission together. It's the church that loves and serves in simple and practical ways, in ways that will never probably get picked up on many uh, government reports or statistical uh, analyses. It's the church that tells the story of God's redemptive love for the world and nurtures the faith of little children and the aging and everybody in between. Friends, while we may see and be aware of large ministries that look really significant and look really flashy and look really impressive, the truth is that around the world, most churches, most local congregations are smallish, kind of extended networks of friends, gathering around God's word, ordinary, multi-generational communities, these are God's plan for the world. And I'm sure that you are at least a little bit surprised to hear this, like the church is God's plan, really, because it's no real secret that even as the church is growing and thriving in in other parts of the world, in Asia and the Middle East and in, in Africa and in South America, uh, that in Western Europe and the United States, the church is <coughs> Uh, seems to be waning in its influence. Uh, every report that comes out indicates that, um, even for Christians, those who consider themselves Christians, that church attendance is on the decline, that giving is on the decline, and there's a lot of things that we can say about that. But one thing is clear. Uh, one thing that's clear is this: we have to remember who we are. If we're going to be the source of hope and light in the world. We're gonna have to remember who we are. One of the things our family does regularly, I'm sure your family does this too, is when our kids are, well, I guess when the parents are going nuts too, but especially when the kids are going nuts and it feels like we're losing control. We gather our children around and we say, hey, we've gotta remember who we are. I love you. I'm your dad. I'm not against you. I'm for you. And the fact that we are (laughs) hails, that's who we are, but it affects the way that we live in the world. And the same thing is true for us. Resurrection OC, if we are going to be salt and light in South Orange County, we're going to have to remember who we are. Last Sunday, we shared with you um, where we believe that God is leading us over the next 12 to 24 months as a church. If you missed it, uh, there's a video that you can watch on our Facebook group or Our Slack channel If you don't know what that means Ask Jason, he'll he'll look you up But as we begin to walk By faith in this coming year We've got to remember who we are Two weeks ago We finished this series in the book of Jonah I I wish I could have preached the book of Jonah For a lot longer Because it's such a great book It's such a comical book It's such a great uh, kind of picture Of how God's grace catches us And transforms us and, and, and really, you know, how God wants to channel his grace through us um, to the world. But the book of Jonah ends with a question and really begins with a challenge. And uh, the book of Jonah ends by God asking Jonah, he says, there are 120,000 people in this city and also many cattle. Should I not have compassion on that great city? You know, the question is Jonah, uh, God's saying to Jonah, Jonah, I have compassion for that city, why don't you? And we kind of be, uh, concluded that series with a challenge posing the question, there are 3.2 million people in Orange County, and also many orange trees. God has compassion on them. Should we? Of course we should. What does that look like? If we are going to walk by faith together into the good works that God has prepared in advance for us, Res- Resurrection seed to do, we're going to have to remember who we are. Because our identity shapes our behavior. Who God says we are uh, informs the way that we move out into the world as salt and light. Can I tell you the good news? The good news is twofold. The first part of the good news is this. You can just relax because uh, the church has always seemed incredibly unlikely. (laughs) I mean, think back to the earliest days of the church in the, in, the, in the Book of Acts, and you know, the first couple hundred years of the church as the, as the kind of the heel of the Roman Empire, tried to just crush the church out of existence. And yet, despite all of that, the, uh, the church outlives the greatest superpower the world has ever known and continues to thrive and flourish, and there are so many examples that we could use To back that up but if we are going to be a part of God's plan um, for these people in this place in this time we've got to remember who we are the good news is that the church has always seemed incredibly unlikely cheer up (laughs) but there's more good news the the second part of this the good news about the church is this that we don't have to make this up ourselves the church is God's plan let me say like this the church is God's plan it's it's God's plan, okay? But it's also God's plan. Like, he knows what he's doing, and we don't have to make this up. Uh, My goal as a pastor has been to never say anything original. We're We're not making this up as we go along. The Bible actually, and so what we're doing today is beginning a series on the eight things that the New Testament says are markers of the church, We have to remember who we are, but the good news is that we're not making that up. um, The New Testament gives kind of eight clear characteristics that um, mark our God-given identity as a church. This is God's church. It's His plan to bless the world. We just get to live it out together. And so we're going to look at what God says about the church, and we're going to look at things like the importance... Uh, of the Bible and how the Holy Spirit uh, brings unity but also enables believers to live out uh, with their kind of unique giftedness in the world. And we're going to look at the way that the church is led and the sacraments, but this morning we're going to start by looking at what uh, the New Testament says about Jesus and the church. Uh, the church, the he- a healthy church, is a church that confesses that Jesus is the Christ A healthy church is a son-confessing church. What I want you to see is simply this. Jesus loves the church, and a healthy church is a church that loves Jesus. Those are the two points this morning. Jesus loves the church, and a healthy church is a church that loves Jesus. So the first thing that I want you to see that comes out of this passage is that Jesus loves the church, and I don't really uh, want to insult your intelligence when I say this, but um, when I say that Jesus loved the church, when I say that Jesus sorry. <laughs> when I say that Jesus loves the church, I don't mean that Jesus likes the church. And I don't mean by that that Jesus sort of thinks the church is a good idea. What I mean by that is Jesus loves the church. He loves the church. We just read in Revelation 19. And this is one of the Bible's kind of favorite ways to describe the church as the bride of Christ. The church is Jesus' bride. He loves her. He doesn't like her. He doesn't endure her. He doesn't think that she's a good idea if you have time. Jesus loves the church. uh, The Bible pictures Jesus like a giddy groom kind of waiting at the bottom of the aisle for that moment when the doors will swing open. And he will see his bride arrayed in a white dress coming down. And they will finally be united. That's the picture of Jesus' love for the church. The church is Jesus' bride. He loves the church. Listen, if you don't like my wife, it's going to be very hard for us to be friends. because are stupid. <laughs> She's definitely the more likable one in any relationship. <laughs> But that makes sense, right? Like, it's going to be very hard for you to be friends with somebody if you don't like like their spouse. And it is going to be very hard for you to follow Jesus if you don't love his bride. Jesus loves his bride. He loves the church. Now, why am I making such a big deal about this? Well, I'm making a big deal about this because there's this common idea today, even amongst those who consider themselves followers of Christians, to, to, to say something like, you know that the church is like it's a decent idea it's not the worst thing in the world um, you know it's kind of like a gym for spirituality uh, but you know there's a lot of ways to get in shape you could run if you wanted to get in shape you could swim you could watch those like workout DVDs at home by yourself there's all kinds of ways if you can get in shape or if you wanted to get in shape you could join a gym and get some input and you know, do that with other people. And the church is kind of the same way the, uh, the thinking goes, that, um, you know, it's, uh, it's not a bad idea, but there's lots of ways to be a Christian. Uh, we tend to think about Jesus as kind of a nice guy who walked around saying inspirational things, and crowds followed him because he was such a great guy, and then after he died, maybe those crowds just kept meeting together to kind of carry on doing what they'd been doing, and that's how the church um, was built. But uh, the church is fine, but whatever, it's kind of up to you. Um, The thinking goes that, I mean, I've heard people say this, that uh, it was never Jesus' intention to start or establish the church. There's only one problem with that. Uh, There's one massive problem with that. The first place in the Bible that you see the word church is in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus literally says these words, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I mean, that's pretty clear, right? The idea that Jesus never intended to start the church is entirely contradicted by the words of Jesus. I feel like I should unpack that. I don't know what else to say. Jesus said, I will build my church. He intended to build his church, and we know that because that's what he said. He uh, establishes his church by dying for her. He establishes his church on the foundation of the apostles' teaching because they were witnesses to his earthly ministry, his death, and his resurrection. Jesus builds his church on this foundation, and he promises that nothing will prevail against it. Not the persecution of the government, not the indifference or the apathy of the masses. Nothing, not even the gates of hell themselves, will overcome his bride. No matter how unlikely it may look, no matter how insurmountable the odds or daunting the obstacles, nothing will prevail against Jesus' church. So take heart. This is God's plan for the world. But this also means this, we cannot love uh, Jesus without loving his bride. We cannot follow Jesus without his church um, you know, there are lots of ways to grow spiritually. Um, you know, conferences are great. It can be a lot of fun. You can learn something new. There are great books and podcasts out there. I'm a big fan of some books and podcasts that my wife is the uh, author of. You should check them out. They're great. They're great. Uh, it's great to marvel and wonder at, uh, at, the, at God as he's revealed himself in creation, fellowship with God in private. These are all great things, but we neglect the church out of our own peril. The church, as we gather weekly for worship, as we celebrate the sacraments and hear the, uh, the, the word of God uh, explained and proclaimed. The church, as we uh, scatter, go our individual ways. The church, as we gather in small groups, both formally and informally, the church, as we uh, bring meals to those in the, the church as we uh, serve our communities and the least of these as we stand up for the, over, uh, the overlooked and the unwanted. The church is the bride of Christ and Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church. But secondly, okay, <laughs> if Jesus loves the church, then what is a healthy church? A healthy church is a church that loves Jesus, right? Again, like some of this is really simple. But what is a church? Is a church a building? I think that, you know, we all know that a church is not just a building. Um, Is a church um, just a group of people? Uh, If your name's on the list, are you part of the church? When we talk about the church, are we talking about, um, you know, just showing up? Or um, how do we find a good church? Uh, Do we just kind of, like, try different churches out and go with our gut? Choose the one that we like the best, that has, like, the... You know, that it's the size we want, has music that we like, has uh, preaching that is tolerable, uh, has the programs we're looking for. But the first mark of the church, really, is that a healthy church is a church that loves Jesus. A healthy church is a church that loves Jesus. Uh, it's a church that confesses that Jesus is the Christ and recognizes Jesus as the Lord. This is just the clear and simple teaching of the New Testament. And and what I want to kind of quickly survey for us is that this is like the overwhelming message of the New Testament. Uh, All the New Testament talks about, that's a little bit of an overstatement, but almost the only thing the New Testament talks about is how much the church loves Jesus. That's what the New Testament is about. It starts with God himself uh, in Mark 1 Jesus begins his public ministry. And in Mark 1, verse 11, God the Father uh, speaks the audible voice of God the Father. As Jesus begins his ministry, he hasn't done anything yet, but he goes out into the wilderness to be baptized by John the Baptist. And as he's coming up out of the water, it says that uh, the audible voice of God said, This is my Son, who I love. That's what God says. Uh, There's one other place in the New Testament that God the Father speaks. There's several places in the Old Testament where you hear kind of the the voice that we're, you know, we don't hear it, but it's recorded what God said. Two places as far as I can tell in the New Testament it's the baptism of Jesus, the beginning of his ministry, and then at the end of his ministry at the Mount of Transfiguration, and there he says the exact same thing. He says, this is my son, and I love him. And the second time he adds, you should listen to that. <laughs> so this is not an exaggeration to say. The only thing God talks about is how much he loves Jesus. Like for the last 2,000 years, that's what God's talking about, is how much he loves his son. And this continues in the early church. Uh, the day of Pentecost, the moment the, you know, the New Testament church is, is born, church has roots, of course, going back into the Old Testament people of God and the nation of Israel, but really, you know, the New Testament church is born on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles and uh, they begin to do things that the crowd doesn't understand and they say what's going on? And the only way to explain what's going on is for the Apostle Peter to stand up and tell them who Jesus is. And so, um, he explains in Acts 2, 32, he says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And then in verse 36 he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know that God, uh, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The church is born by talking about Jesus. And then this continues, you know, you would think, well, Jesus is obviously very important, so maybe that was like how they got the church started, but then they moved on to other more interesting things. But uh, kind of further along towards the close of the time the New Testament is being written, um, the book of uh, 1 John, one of the the later books uh, I I think to be written, um, many years later, 1 John 4 says this, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. The church is constantly talking about Jesus. This is almost exclusively what the church in the New Testament talks about. Jesus. (laughs) If you leave here today going, man, he sure said the name Jesus a lot. Maybe he overdid it. Maybe Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's the point. At one point, the Apostle Paul says, you know, um, Greeks are obsessed with wisdom. And so what they really want, and what would make Christianity persuasive to Greek culture, would be interesting ideas and philosophical theories. And that's what the Greeks really want. But what the Jews really want is they want signs, and so they want to see something amazing. And if, if we could show them something amazing, then they would be convinced that Christianity is true. But Paul said, but we preach Christ in him. That's, like, the one tool in our toolbox. We tell people about Jesus. Everywhere you look in the New Testament, the church is talking about Jesus. It's all that they talked about. I mean, there are a few significant places where they talk about something else. Um, You know, one of the big controversies in the early church was, uh, who, who can we eat with? And so in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council uh, meets together, a council of the church gets together and uh, and kind of decides on this kind of secondary matter. And basically what they say is Jesus is central, our life is bound up in his, and any other issues are issues of conscience. Uh, our job as a church is to talk about Jesus. Here's the point. A healthy church is simply a church that's talking about Jesus all the time. Uh, it's all that God the Father talked about. It's all that the church The New Testament talks about Jesus as central to our life as a church. And so we're going to talk about Jesus a lot. The church fathers um, believed that this was so central that they spent like the first 800 years of church history arguing exactly about the nature of Jesus. Was he fully God? Did he only appear to be a man? Did he only appear to be God and he was fully man? All these things for 800 years, it was so important that they argued back and forth. Who is Jesus? essential to the life of the church before I was a pastor here resurrection OC, I was a college pastor um, and one uh, there was a there was a freshman girl who'd been a part of our ministry for a while and I had noticed that uh, she hadn't been around for a while and so we had this great grad student named Sarah and um, she would just she just, she was awesome and she would just care for these younger students and um, At one point I asked Sarah, I'm like, I haven't seen this girl around, you know what's going on with her, and so Sarah reached out to her, and and she came back a couple days later, and she said, oh yeah, I talked to this girl, and she said that she's not going to come back to our ministry anymore, because what she said was, Bryce never talks about like the controversial stuff, he only talks about Jesus, and it was one of those moments of like, you just said as an insult what I actually take as a compliment, like, that's, that's the point. Um, as a church, we're going to talk a lot about Jesus. We're going to encourage you to talk about Jesus. You know, if, if you're a Christian, what you're saying is, Jesus is the most important thing in my life. It's very strange to live a life where you say that Jesus is the most important thing in my life, but I almost never talk about it with anybody. That's just very strange. Um, you know, as families, uh, as parents, I think one of the worst things that we could do for our children is talk about Jesus just a little bit. Um, bring our kids to church every once in a while. Um, you know, send them to Sunday school. Maybe uh, send them to Christian school. Like, outsource their religious education. Talk about Jesus a little bit. It's like vaccinating our children. We give them a weakened version of Jesus. We talk about him just enough that they're familiar enough with him to get over him. They've never actually encountered the real thing. It's tragic. It's how we inoculate our kids and our neighbors and ourselves against Jesus. Just a little bit of a weakened Jesus inoculates us against the real thing. So we're going to talk about Jesus. We've always talked about Jesus. We're going to continue to encourage. We're going to continue to talk about Jesus a lot. We're going to encourage you to talk about Jesus, to get him into your life. Um, In the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians is about Paul writing to this church that thinks that they need more than Jesus. And what Paul says to them is, the goal of your life is to become more like Jesus. And that happens when you make a big deal about Jesus. That's what we're going to do we're going to continue to do so that raises the question doesn't it you know there's a lot of different opinions about Jesus have you noticed that almost everybody uh, wants to claim Jesus for their cause you know if you're a political candidate you really want Jesus on your side right Um, if you have a, a cause you want Jesus on your side um, there's there's Jesus kind of the moral teacher there's Jesus the inspirational teacher there's um, you know kind of the American Jesus which is apparently the Jesus who says don't judge me uh, don't judge me um, there's kind of the uh, the homeboy Jesus you know uh, Jesus is my homeboy I'm cool with Jesus Jesus must be cool with me um, everybody wants Jesus on their side everybody wants Jesus behind their cause and um, Everybody gets livid when uh, you suggest that maybe Jesus has his own identity, that is not dependent on what you want him to be. Uh, So how do we know who Jesus really is? Um, Well, there are six things that the Bible says about Jesus. I'm going to just kind of run through this very quickly uh, for the sake of time. But there there are six things that the the New Testament says over and over and over again about Jesus and that are kind of enshrined by the creeds in the first eight centuries of the church um, and expanded on later during the time of the Reformation. Um, The six things that the Bible insists on, um, as explained by the early church, really uh, the first is the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is fully God, that that Jesus comes to earth as God coming to rescue us. God does not... um, demand payment for our sin but comes to bear bear the penalty himself. Jesus is fully God. Secondly, the humanity of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is able to save us because he was like us in every way, yet was without sin. He identifies with us. Thirdly, uh, the sinless life of Jesus. Jesus is is our sacrifice because he was without sin. He fully obeyed God's law. Fourthly, the substitutionary death of Jesus. Jesus died in our place, and God is willing to accept him as the penalty, the payment for our sin uh, in exchange for demanding that penalty from from us ourselves. Jesus died in our place. Fifth, the the resurrection of Jesus. This is clear um, throughout the New Testament. Uh, The insistence that Jesus not only lived and died but raised again historically in the flesh on the third day. And then finally, the exclusive claims of Jesus that require a response. And this is what uh, you know, makes us bristle. Uh, the culture that we live in hates this idea that John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. Uh, it requires a response. So why does this matter? Why, why is it important that, that we're, we're talking about the Jesus of the Bible instead of, you know, happy, nice guy Jesus? Uh, why does this matter? Well, there's a few reasons um, that I think are really important. It matters because we can't stop sinning. It matters because we can't stop uh, justifying ourselves. We can't stop feeling guilt over the things that we've done. We can't stop feeling ashamed about who we are at some level. Um, We can't stop trying to earn our salvation or convince ourselves that we're good enough. And perhaps most importantly of all, this matters because we can't stop dying. Friends, I think these are the most important things in life. I mean, really, we think that the most important things in life are things like our job and our children and our houses, and um, living kind of the, the you know, sort of lifestyle that we want to live. Um, but those aren't the most important things in life. They're not the most important things in life at all. You know, we think uh, sometimes of Christianity. When we think of Christianity, we, we sometimes think Christianity is about life after death. But sometimes I think living in Orange County, that the, the biggest challenge we face in Orange County. It's not the question of life after death, it's the question of life before death. Like, are you actually gonna live before you die? Because so much of our time is going around looking for something that will satisfy us, whether it's a job, or a relationship, or a house, or a car, or vacation, or whatever it is, and yet every you know, six months to four years we gotta blow it all up and start over again. And what that proves is, like we, we are looking for meaning, and we are not finding satisfaction. We are not finding satisfaction. And so, friends, Jesus may not tell you, like, directly or explicitly what job you should pursue or how to raise your children or um, where you should live or how to kind of live a life as an upwardly mobile, happy person. But he will bring you into community. And he will infuse every moment of your life with meaning and purpose. So as you ask all of those questions about should I do this job or take that path, you don't do any of it alone. And all of it is suffused with meaning and purpose. In his life, Jesus lived for you. In his death, he died for you. He paid the penalty you owed for your sin. In his resurrection, he promises that even death will not leave you lonely. Even death will not separate you from God. (laughs) Jesus loves you. He loves his church. And so a healthy church is a church that loves Jesus. And so resurrection, sin that means we're going to talk a lot about Jesus. We're going to keep the Bible's emphases. The things that the Bible emphasizes about Jesus are going to continue to be the things that we emphasize as a church. Of course, we've got you know, some personality and unique ways of doing things as a church. But mostly what we want to talk about is Jesus emphasize what the Bible talks about says about him. We're going to talk about how dark the world is you know one of the things that people have uh, said to me on occasion is that one of the things we do as a church is we, we, we talk about the reality that the world is a dark place. Part of the reason we do that is because that's our reality but part of the reason we do that is because it shines the light all the brighter on Jesus it shines the light all the brighter on Jesus um we're going to continue to encourage you to respond to Jesus, to make much of Jesus, and to talk about Jesus yourself. We're going to make it our aim to bring, uh, to bring others to Jesus and to bring Jesus to Orange County. Jesus loves the church. The church is his bride, and so we're going to stick with him. So let me finish by telling you this story. In the uh, mid-1800s, before the Civil War in America, uh, there was a pastor in Richmond, Virginia named Dr. Hogue. I think Richmond, Virginia was the capital of the Confederacy. And uh, this man, this pastor, he hated slavery. He had a personal, moral, spiritual uh, revulsion against the practice of slavery. But when he got married, uh, he married a woman and the dowry price was seven slaves. So I I guess his father-in-law gave him seven slaves. And he was so repulsed by that fact that he Uh, immediately emancipated these these human beings that had been given to him. And uh, one slave immediately left, but the other six slaves wouldn't leave. And he explained to them, he said, you're free. You can go anywhere you want. You can do anything you want. You are not bound to me anymore. And one of the men said to him, sir, if I could go anywhere I want, or do anything I want, then it's okay with you, I'd like to stay here and work on your land. And Dr. Hope could not understand why until he began to talk with them and discovered that these men had been treated like the property of someone else and used and abused. And when they finally met a man who valued them and honored them and respected them and was willing to set them free. They discovered that there was nowhere better that they could go than to remain with the one who had set them free. And friends, that's the gospel. Jesus has set you free. And there is nowhere better we can run to. So let's just stay with Him. Jesus loves the church. And a healthy church is a church that loves Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have loved us such a great cost. You aren't disgusted by us, you aren't repulsed by us, but you are determined to make us your own, to woo us back to yourself. And so, Jesus, I pray that uh, we would be captivated by uh, the, the beauty of who you are and the depth of your sacrifice. And that as we see who you are and what you've done for us, that our hearts would be melted and we would become people who love you in response. God, would our church be a church that loves Jesus and pray in his name. Amen. This morning we are celebrating at the Lord's Supper, at the Lord's Table. And really what the Bible would have us believe, friends, is that all of human history is moving towards a feast, uh, an opportunity to celebrate around the table. And I was struck this week as I was reading that passage in Revelation chapter 19 about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, it, it reminded me of an incident that happened a couple of weeks ago. I was talking to my daughter, she's five, and she was asking me about um, my relationship with Ashley my wife and um, she was asking, did you know mommy before you got married to her? And I was saying, yeah, we actually, uh, she was my girlfriend for almost five years before we got married. And I could see this just look of relief wash over her face. And what I realized is somehow in her five-year-old mind, she thought that one day you just show up at a church and you get married to the other person who shows up there. She was so relieved to discover that She had some measure of, you know, agency in in this reality. (laughs) It's good news. But Revelation 19, in a beautiful way, and in a surprising way, I think almost pictures uh, the inverse of that, that that all of human history is moving towards this party, and you will be gathered there at this feast, waiting for something to happen, and all of a sudden you will realize that it's your wedding day. And the bridegroom will emerge, and Jesus' church, the bride, uh, will emerge in white, uh, pure uh, garments made pure because Jesus has bought us. That is the feast that we are looking forward to. And this morning we get to celebrate just a foretaste of that meal. On the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after he had given thanks for it, he broke it, and he said, This is my body that is broken for you. Take and eat. And after they'd eaten, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. The Apostle Paul said that it's as we eat the bread and drink the wine that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. It is a sign of our unity as a church that we eat together, that we feast together. And so uh, I want to remind you that this is not resurrection of C's table. This is not our denomination's table. This is Jesus' table. And so he welcomes all those who have put their trust in him. And who are clinging to him, however infallibly, or however infallibly, to come and celebrate, to be glad. We're going to sing as we come forward because this is a feast. But if you have yet to put your trust in Jesus and be joined to his church through baptism, I would encourage you simply to remain seated. There's no shame in proclaiming and not proclaiming something that you don't actually believe is true. But if you uh, are coming with hope this morning that Jesus really is this good, then I want you to want to encourage you to come forward. We'll come in groups of about 10 or so. Jeff and I are going to feed one group. We'll, we'll, We'll celebrate together, take the elements together. And then that group will go, sit back down. The next group will come forward. We'll sing. It might be a little bit loud. Please, as you're waiting, feel free to sing. This is a celebration. We've already confessed our sins. We've already heard uh, the forgiveness. We have enjoyed uh, hearing again this story of the gospel. This is the Lord's table. He invites the Lord's people to come and celebrate. So would you pray with me? Oh, God, would you now take these simple elements, this bread and this wine, And would you use them to encourage us, strengthen our faith, help us to come with a smile on our face because Jesus is better than we imagined. We pray in his name.